from Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C. This is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, rate us. And now, today's topic. There are few Americans alive today who can recall a time when the United States hasn't been entangled in some way with the Middle East. It is a geopolitical crossroads blessed with incredible resources. It is also a region with bitter religious and tribal rivalries that has struggled to provide stability for the people who live there. And the region's instability has made it a breeding ground for radical ideologies that have produced violence and terror in the region and around the world, including the attack on the United States on September 11, 2001. President George W. Bush's decision to invade Iraq in 2003 with a coalition of allies was, among other things, seen as an opportunity to bring democracy to the heart of the region and remove one of the serial human rights abusers and aggressors of the time. But while the world watched with admiration as Iraqis held up ink-stained fingers as they exercised their right to vote for the first time, nefarious Iranian leadership to the east was plotting their next steps in a decades-old proxy war with America, Israel, and our other allies. Today, that proxy war encompasses Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, and yes, even Iraq, as Iranian influence has abused the fledgling democracy to install leaders sympathetic to their cause. With Russia openly supporting Syrian despot Bashar al-Assad as he massacres his people and paves the way for an Iranian land bridge to the Mediterranean, the United States has attempted to marshal its own allies among the Sunnis, Kurds, and nations like Saudi Arabia who seek to avoid being under Iran's thumb. Indeed, the many conflicts in various parts of the Middle East are proxy wars between much bigger powers, like the United States and its Western allies, and Russia and Iran, who thrive on the Middle East's instability and vacuums in power. To discuss the current situation and give his on-the-ground perspective, we are pleased to be joined today by Michael Pregent, a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute. He is a Middle East analyst, a former adjunct lecturer for the College of International Security Affairs, and a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. Mike is a former intelligence officer with over 28 years' experience working security, terrorism, counterinsurgency, and policy issues in the Middle East, North Africa, and Southwest Asia. He is an expert in Middle East and North Africa political and security issues, counterterrorism analysis, stakeholder communications, and strategic planning. He regularly testifies before Congress on these issues. He spent considerable time working to counter Iranian influence in Iraq as an advisor to Iraq's security and intelligence apparatus, including an embedded advisory role with Iraq's Prime Minister Nouria al-Malaki's extra-constitutional office of the Commander-in-Chief. He served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, served as a liaison officer in Egypt during the 2000 Intifada, as a counterinsurgency intelligence officer at CENTCOM in 2001, and as a company commander in Afghanistan in 2002. He also served as an embedded advisor with the Peshmerga in Mosul from 2005 to 2006. From 2007 to 2011, he worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency, where he served as a political and military advisor in Iraq, focusing on reconciliation, the insurgency, and Iranian influence. He was a violent extremism and foreign fighter analyst at CENTCOM from 2011 to 2013. Mike holds a master's in strategic public relations from the George Washington University and is a graduate of the U.S. Army's Defense Language Institute in modern standard Arabic and Egyptian dialect. 
Mike, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So of all of our senior fellows here at Hudson, and I think we have a lot that are uh, have very interesting backgrounds, yours to me is one of the most interesting. I mean, I, I don't think it's, you know, a lot of people are watching the, or binging the Jack Ryan series right now. I think you're kind of Hudson's Jack Ryan. <laughs> um, not, to, not to flatter you too much, but you lived an interesting life. You've done a lot in the, in the Middle East, and I think uh, you're going to share a lot of things today that will bring some on-the-ground insights that are really helpful on this topic. So um, if you can, let's start out, though, I think talking a little bit about that background just so I, I think it's interesting and, and folks will enjoy it. Um, when was the first time you went to the Middle East, and uh, you know what did you think, and, and how did it grow from there? Well, I think I was predestined to go to the Middle East because I in, ended up learning Arabic and Egyptian dialect at the age of 18 at the Defense Language Institute of Monterey, California, as an intelligence uh, voice interceptor. <clears throat> An enlisted uh, soldier, went to Monterey, California, learned modern standard Arabic and six months of Egyptian dialect, and then uh, was sent to the 101st Airborne Division. And soon after that, Saddam invaded Kuwait and found myself in Desert Storm, uh, doing all sorts of intel things from uh, uh, detainee interviews, tactical questioning, to voice intercept, and basically taking, surrendering Iraqis to to a uh, detention center just because they were surrendering to anybody who looked American. Right, right. Good. And and so how long was that tour? How long were you <clears> Well, that was about a year. That was before we had six-month tours and year tours. It was okay. still in that model where you go to war and you kind of stay until it's over. Yeah. So it was, it, was a, it, was about, it was a year long, but we never had a rotation date. We simply were there until we were told yeah. we were done. Good. So uh, you've been in the region a lot since then. What are, what are some other times? I assume you were... Yeah, I spent time uh, in, in uh, Egypt and Israel during the Intifada, the 2000 Intifada. I was there as a liaison officer with the 82nd Airborne Division. And, uh, you know, prior to that, even though I dived in the, in the, into the Middle East quite a bit, we were all still Russia guys. Yeah. We were always looking at what Russia was doing in the region. And that all changed with 9-11. So prior to 9-11, it was Desert Storm. And then the next time I was in the Middle East was uh, was Egypt. And then with 9-11... Uh, that changed everything. So we, we all started focusing on Al-Qaeda. I went to Afghanistan as a company commander mm-hmm. in 2001, 2002, and then came back and found myself in Iraq soon after that as an embedded advisor with the Peshmerga in 2005, 2006. And that was a quick 20-year military career. And after that, uh, DIA picked me up as a subject matter expert on... And DIA for our uh, listeners defense, defense, defense Intelligence Agency. Agency. Yeah picked me up as a highly qualified expert or a subject matter expert on the Iraqi security forces and basically uh, U.S. partnering forces against al-Qaeda. And then we had this new element, not only against al-Qaeda, but against the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from Iran, its Quds Force, led by General Qasem Soleimani. And that's pretty much where I cut my teeth and was asked to come back for the next four years as uh, as an expert to deal with the ROGC Quds Force. Okay, so during that during that time, I mean, you've been in and out of the region over a few decades now. What what's the biggest change you've seen, just um, as an overview? The biggest change has been a change in narratives. Uh, yet the players have all stayed the same. Uh, it's you could literally take people that I worked with in two thousand seven, from H.R. McMaster uh, to General Petraeus, and have their two thousand seven versions actually debate their present positions and their 2007 versions win that debate, meaning the narrative is the biggest thing that's changed and the underlying current, all the metrics have stayed the same. So you literally have two different stories 
one very positive in 2018, one warning about what would happen if we ignored what Iran was doing, which actually led us to 2018. And when I, when I say that, I'm talking about Iraq and Syria falling into the Iranian sphere of influence based on what we failed to accomplish in Iraq with the same people that saw it coming now being advocates for narratives that paint a very positive picture and ignore what Iran is actually doing. Right. So let's lay out the the players and right. kind of talk at a 30,000 foot and then we'll get down right. more on the ground. So, you know, going back, you say the players are the same. Who are they? Obviously, Iran's one of them. Yeah. So the Iraqi politicians from Prime Minister Maliki behind the scenes, it didn't matter that he wasn't prime minister. He was still pulling the strings behind the scenes. Uh, to Hadi Al-Amri, who came in second uh, with, his, with his Fatah Alliance Party, which is basically an Iranian-backed political party that not only has uh, the majority of the seats now that they've been able to form in the COR, the Council of Representatives, yeah, yeah. That's an but, Iraqi, but they, have yeah. a, they have a militia apparatus that has primacy over the Iraqi security forces with groups that have been designated like Kitab Hezbollah with its leader Abu Mehdi al-Mohendis, Asab al-Haq, and these groups that I mentioned, Asab al-Haq and Kitab Hezbollah, killed Americans. Right. Killed Americans, and now they've they've won political seats. And uh, you know, I testified a couple of weeks ago about designating a sub haq and a group uh, Harakat Nujeba, which is a new militia that was created under this ISIS campaign right. by Qasem Soleimani. Um, and you actually have pushback from Americans that we shouldn't designate these groups that have killed Americans. And I don't I don't understand the, I what, don't understand what's what's narrative. your theory on that? Why wouldn't they want to? Uh, because um, not to make the Iranians angry, or is it? I, I've actually been told by people that followed very closely. I won't mention their names. That uh, they're not a, they're not that bad anymore. Okay. Sure, they killed Americans seven years ago. But the problem is they're still threatening to do it. Uh, these same groups have launched rockets and mortars against our embassy in Baghdad and also mm-hmm. our consulate in Basra, and they are now finding themselves in Syria. They've actually encroached on the U.S. training operation in Al Tanif in, in southern Syria. Mm-hmm. And we've actually had to use airstrikes to, to, to hit them in a defensive posture because we can't hit them offensively because they're not covered in the uh, status of uh, correction, the authorization use of military force. We're not allowed to attack uh, Shia militias. We can attack Sunni terrorist right. groups, but not Shia ones. And that's something that um, Congress is looking to change. There's legislation out there to change the AUMF. There's not a lot of support in the MOD, but the, our, our Ministry of Defense, mm-hmm. our Defense Ministry. Uh, but the DOD is is likely going to change out its, uh, you know, its um, Secretary of Defense here in the next uh, couple months. Okay. So, uh, just broadly, Americans, you know, when we're thinking about what's going on in the Middle East, we think of Syria, we think of ISIS, um, you know, that kind of disputed, not really disputed region, but just lawless region that the U.S. has now uh, done a good job pushing ISIS back. But a lot of think, a lot of Americans think, you know, Iraq is, you know, well, we, you know, we had some adventures there, but it's kind of stable. It sounds like it's not. And it sounds like it is just as, as Syria, part of this kind of proxy conflict going on between yeah. the Iranians and, and, and us in the West. Yeah. ISIS isn't defeated. ISIS is already operating at the Al-Qaeda model. It's been doing that for about a year and a half now. Right. Uh, it still c- can conduct operations in any province in Iraq, with the exception of of the ones down south, and that's just because they don't need to. Um, and the IRGC Quds Force militias have primacy in Iraq. So, so not only do you have a country where its central government um, disenfranchises its Sunni and Kurdish populations, 
Now the Shia population, which makes up 60% of the population, and is un- and 60% of that population is under the age of 30, are now saying they're disenfranchised. So you literally have right. Shia, Sunni, and Kurds saying that Baghdad isn't working because of Iranian influence. Right. And it keeps um, incubating these existential threats like ISIS and al-Qaeda and, and now with well, an Well, they destabilize the region. I mean, that's their, their goal is to – is well, it, it's to, you know, kind of uh, – Achieve uh, uh, influence in the region, but also to keep Americans and and uh, other Israel on their on their heels, right? Al Qaeda and ISIS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, but Iran, Iran, exactly. I'm talking about Iran, obviously. Yeah, all three. Iran is very happy with an ISIS presence in Iraq, an ISIS presence in Syria. It validates and justifies everything they're doing. But you're right; it's not only Iran. Iran is okay with that. Iran actually uses it to, to, to uh, justify its destabilizing activities across the region. Uh, and ISIS wants to do the same thing. And Al-Qaeda yeah. wants to do the same thing. And they have a, a, uh, a partner, in a sense, in, in that Iran is okay with it. Yeah. It's okay with allowing it to, to, to uh, operate in these ungoverned Sunni spaces because it allows them to have more influence on central governments in these countries. So not to look too far back, you know, I want to try to talk forward here, but but it's important to understand this. How how did it reach the point? You know, the U.S. spent all this blood and treasure in in, in Iraq. How did it reach the point that that Iran now has so much influence and we can't do anything about it? Well, when we first went in, we 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 had a very simple thinking that hey, let's simply empower the Shia of Iraq and they'll help us overthrow Saddam and everything will be great. The problem is the Shia that we started aligning ourselves with were the Badr Corps and the Islamic Supreme Council of Iraq, which were um, a political party in, in Iski and a, and a militia, a premier proxy militia in the Badr Corps that answered directly to Qasem Soleimani and the Supreme Leader. Back Yet, in Iraq. Yeah, but they yeah. were very pragmatic, right, because let's help the U.S. defeat the Sunni insurgency. Yeah. The problem is they saw any Sunni military-age male as a potential al-Qaeda fighter or a sympathizer, and you had these extrajudicial killings. You had the sectarian civil war between the Shia militias and the Sunni population that yeah. couldn't defend itself. Yeah, right. It was also being attacked by al-Qaeda and the Shia militias. And we finally got it right in 2007 when we built up a what we call the surge, uh, the awakening, mm-hmm. the sons of Iraq, built up the Sunni resistance to al-Qaeda, and also allowed this static security apparatus in the Sunni sons of Iraq to protect their neighborhoods from IRGC Quds Force Shia militias. Yeah. And we finally got leverage or had leverage in all three sectors of the Iraqi uh, uh, demographic community. You know, you had the Kurds, the Shia, and the Sunnis. And it worked. And then they heard a message from D.C. What, what year was that when it was working? 2008. Okay. And yet they had heard the message from the president-elect uh, President Obama, that we're leaving. We, we don't. The surge worked. We're out. Yeah. And that yeah. message resonated with Qasem Soleimani because he did everything he could to pressure Iraqi politicians not to sign the Status of Forces Agreement. Right. And you started seeing security backslide. The security apparatus that we put in with the Sons of Iraq and the uh, the Awakening was dismantled by Prime Minister Maliki. Was targeted by Prime Minister Maliki, the Shia militias, and Al Qaeda. Revenge, you know, yeah, uh, basically getting revenge for, for them working with the United States. And it led to this security void that grew and incubated ISIS. Yeah, yeah. And here we are again. Okay. We, uh, we basically destroyed four major Sunni cities in this ISIS campaign 
to rid Iraq of six to 10,000 ISIS fighters. We put 2.6 million Sunnis into the refugee population. We destroyed Ramadi, 80% destroyed. We destroyed yeah. Mosul, 60%. But that's not how we do counterinsurgency. Counterinsurgency is not a, a tactical win. Right. Counterinsurgency is a strategic long game. Yeah. And we, we failed at that, and we simply reset the conditions that led to ISIS to begin with. Yeah, yeah I know it's... These things get pretty depressing when you start talking about them uh, in depth. But, okay, let, let's talk a bit about, well, let, just to kind of, we're never going to be done talking about Iraq in this conversation. Right, right. But to, what, what, what could we do right now to reassert some influence there? And is there, do you see any, any uh, efforts on behalf of the current administration to do that? Or, or are you optimistic at all? Or is we're, it pessimism all the way? To the, well, we're cheerleading the... Uh, the current leadership structure in Iraq, the, the new prime minister, uh, Abdul Abdul Mehdi, the new president, Barham Salah, and the new uh, Sunni speaker of the house, uh, Mohammed Halbusi. Mm-hmm. All sounds great. One's a Shia, one's a Kurd, one's a Sunni. The right. problem is they're all Soleimani's people. Okay. And what I mean by that is they're not firebrands. They're not going to say they're pro-Iran, but they are, they are in that position to bend. Okay. They're in that position to facilitate what Qasem Soleimani wants. These are moderate, weak, likable men that will be pushed around. They can be pushed around by the U.S., but we have one lever when we push around. We use the threat of withholding funds. Yeah, Iran uses different threats. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, from you know cutting off of funds. They also use a carrots and stick. They'll they'll pay it. They'll pay them off to do things, and then they also will threaten them. So. The, what we'll learn about Iraq and who actually has control is when we see the uh, ministries start filling up. And right now there's 22 ministries. There's 23 actually, but there's 22 ministries in Iraq. And the Shia political parties will get 12 of those ministries. The Sunnis will get five. The Kurds will get four, and the Christians will get one. What tools do the, does the U.S. have? Any of those ministries that fall into the hands of the Fatah Alliance, that, that political party uh, led by Hadi al-Amri with ties directly to Qasem Soleimani, any of those infrastructure ministries such as oil, finance, transportation, housing and reconstruction, electricity, if those ministries fall to that party, that means that Iran has now offset U.S. sanctions against Iran by hijacking Iraq's economic okay. sector. Okay. And we can use levers there. We okay. can sanction individuals. We can sanction. Uh, we can cut off funds. We can do all sorts of things, and that's what I'm looking at now. So my analysis now is focused on who takes those ministries. Okay. Well, that's good. That's that's the kind of uh, you know in-depth knowledge yeah. you need to know. To yeah. So on the top, it looks it looks nice. You have yeah. you have a very likable prime minister, mm-hmm. a very likable president, and a very well, I don't, not a, not a likable at all council of uh, a representative speaker, or a house speaker if you want to call it that. Um, it's the power behind that. It's the yeah. muscle behind that, and we'll see that with who takes the ministries. Okay, no, that's that's something to be watching for. Um, do you? All right, let's let's turn a little bit more to to Syria. Right. Uh, I mean, in Iraq, we'll obviously play into this as well. Um, g- give us some background on Syria and and what how we got where we have gotten. Um, that's a way to put it. Right. <laughs> um, right. Uh. Uh, you know, Assad, kind of give us the background there and, and who the players are, and, and then we'll dig a little deeper. Right. There's very simple arguments again. Um, mm-hmm. With Iraq, it was the Shia will help us get rid of the Sunnis. In Syria, when we first started seeing the uh, introduction of Lebanese Hezbollah 
and Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate Jabhat al-Nusra, the, the simple thinking was, that's great. Let them just kill each other. It just doesn't work yeah, that way. Right. Um, unless they're actually competing for everything in the country, it just doesn't work that way. We saw Jabhat al-Nusra splinter into many groups, and then you saw the creation of ISIS. Uh, Lebanese Hezbollah didn't just stay with Lebanese Hezbollah. You saw the creation of, of Iraqi militias that went into Syria. You saw the creation of other Syrian militias tied to the IRGC. So it just basically grew yeah. out of control more and more things. And by the time we get involved, we have such a limited scope that we're focused on ISIS. So we try to do what we think worked in Iraq with the Sons of Iraq and the Awakening by yeah. recruiting Sunnis to fight ISIS. The problem is Sunnis where in, in Syria. Syria yeah. yeah. The problem and, is and where are they located? Just physically, are they? Are well, eighty percent of the country. Okay, eighty percent of the country is a Sunni Arab. It's not a it's not a regional thing where most of them are out in the <coughs> eastern. Uh, it is eighty percent of the country. So Raqqa okay. and Deir Ezzor, the ISIS caliphate, the, yeah. the, the, the cities in the in the the caliphate uh, capital of Syria and in Raqqa, uh, basically, you had a recruiting effort that basically vetted out anybody with any experience and vetted out anyone with any ties to a former group. If we did it in Iraq, we never would have been able to raise 110,000 Sunnis to push back against al-Qaeda. A lot of these Sunnis were, in fact, uh, al-Qaeda at one point. Right. But they, they joined out of, you know, al-Qaeda moves in and starts recruiting locals. Uh, same thing with Jabhat al-Nusra and these other groups. So we vetted out anyone who ever had any ties to these militant groups and basically ended up with people without experience who, when they went into training... Uh, U.S. training in Turkey, the insurgency in Syria already knew who they were, knew who their families were, knew who to pressure. And when they came back, they were already intimidated enough to just give up their weapons and be killed or basically um, go to ground and just hide. So we yeah. we had those tr the training mission failed because we didn't recruit the right people. Okay. In Iraq, we, we took seven tribal leaders and said, build a force. In Syria, we wanted to do our own biometrics on every individual in our own vetting process instead of letting a tribal leader vouch for his people okay. and holding that tribal leader accountable. So we never built a Sunni force. So that leads us to this proxy thing yeah, where, right. where we started working with the YPG Who's the and YPG? the SDF. It's a, it's a Kurdish, uh, Kurdish militia in, yeah. in, in northern Syria. I was going to bring the Kurds in. The Kurds are obviously yeah. part of this. Yeah, I, and and I'll t I'll, I, guess, I guess we'll go dive into the proxy thing here yeah. in a little bit. Yeah. But, um, so, so Assad has been visiting atrocities on his people since he's been there, but but it really ramped up in the last you know eight, five five years right, or so, right. and we've seen these chemical weapon attacks. Um, talk a little about that and sure. why he's doing that, and uh, we'll then talk about the international response. It, it's a um, it, it's 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 evil brilliance in a way. You you use barrel bombs, you do all these things. And you kill more people with a barrel bomb than you do with sarin gas or chlorine gas. Yeah. But then you use chlorine gas and sarin gas, and that becomes a focus. Okay, well, don't do that again, or that'll right. be a red line. So he he learns that our response is only going to be if he uses these top-tier, um, brutal chemical-type yeah. munitions. He can use everything else. So okay. Russia uses white phosphorus. Russia uses aerial denial weapons. 
Um, they, explain explain what those are. White, white phosphorus. Uh, it basically just burns everything in its path. You know, drop, it's air dropped, uh, it's mm-hmm. air burst, and then the white phosphorus goes everywhere. If you breathe it in, it burns your lungs. It, okay. it, it, it basically burns through metal. It does all these things. Is it's, it is it prohibited by it uh, is, chemical it is, weapons it treaties? Is, or it is, is it? It's prohibited as, as, as a munition. I, okay. I don't know that it falls under the uh, – I find that out after yeah, this, yeah, but yeah, I don't know fine. at this time. But – you know, we made the red line sarin gas. It wasn't ever chlorine gas. It was sarin gas. Okay. Because he continued to do chlorine attacks, but it was sarin. That was the one thing. So the message to Assad is, you can kill 500,000 of your own people with anything. Just don't use sarin gas. And if you do use sarin gas, you're going to see a debate in the United States as to whether or not we should respond. Yeah. You're going to see the Department of Defense come out and say that this is a one-time, a one-off strike against Assad's forces. We're not going to take your Air Force out. We're going to give you prior warning. We're going to coordinate with the Russians. And we're going to go out of our way to say that we're not there to target any Russians or Iranians, and this is a limited strike. And all that does is tell Assad, who at one point the Obama administration said had to go, yeah, and then said, okay, we can work with this guy, uh, or at least leave him in place until elections take place. And that seems to be the position of the Trump administration. It's starting to change now with Ambassador Jeffries yeah. and Secretary Pompeo. But... These atrocities that have taken place, you now have a new standard. Assad can use barrel bombs, kill civilians, Russia can bomb hospitals, and the the uh, everyone will point their fingers at Saudi Arabia. Look what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen. Yeah. Pells in comparison to what Russia and Assad have done in Syria. And I hate to say this as a former military guy, and a, but, but as a counterinsurgency, uh, I guess uh, somebody who talks about it, we did we did a lot of this in Iraq by by helping with the destruction of Ramadi and the destruction of Mosul. Um, we were dropping munition weapons, or precision strike weapons, on a sniper position, where that sniper the the ISIS fighter to civilian uh, population ratio was one ISIS fighter to sixty civilians. Okay. And. That's not how you do counterinsurgency. No, no. You, you just you're don't not, do that. You're not. No. Building any goodwill but, amongst but, the. Innocent population. Yeah, but we, we haven't taught Assad anything. There's seven, 77 letters from the UN condemning what Assad has done without a single repercussion. Why, why do you think there haven't been repercussions? I mean, it, it's there's obviously uh, Russia's involved. I'm going to bring them in as well. Yeah, because, Is it because of, of their prote- the protection they get? It's because Russia it's because Russia's there, and, the, and the, the word out of the Department of Defense has always been, we don't want to escalate with Russia. Anything we do in, in Syria will escalate with Russia. Well, no, it, it, it hasn't. In the case, right. we launched 100 cruise missiles, and Russia sat on their hands. They, yeah. didn't, they didn't do a thing. We did it again, and Russia sat on their hands. They didn't do a thing. Israel conducted six-hour airstrikes against every every uh, static position that Qasem Soleimani had put in place right. to build precision rockets to be used in a future conflict with 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 Israel. Russia sat on its hands. Yeah. Uh, so, and this has all happened in since I guess the first airstrike Trump ordered was in April 2017. Right. There have been a lot more this right. year. That we've said, oh, maybe not U.S. directed, but the Israelis have yeah. definitely been involved. So, so it was almost a one a year after the first. Yeah, it one. was April. It was April yeah. of 2018. Right, right. And it was twice as big. Involved the 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 Great Great Britain and the French that helped right. as well. Right, um, right. And it directly targeted uh, their their munitions and their chemical weapons factories, which apparently we know where they are. And and right, it, it, it there was a bigger scale package. Yeah, we went with the the smaller scale That's a package, and it, and it was. Uh, Basically, it was it was Secretary Mattis, Pompeo, and Bolton, and the president. Pompeo and Bolton got their way, but Mattis got the package. 
Initially, yeah. Madison and Dunford were against any strike. They wanted to let the inspection team go in and have two more weeks. And you know, we know what happens after two weeks. Yeah, sure. Everything's cleaned yeah, up. There's nothing to see it. anymore. Everything's been moved. Um, so Bolton and Pompeo convinced the president to conduct a strike. And as a face-saving gesture, Mattis got to decide the package. Okay. And uh, it was it was great. Is that, is great that wider, do widely something. reported, or is that your? No, it's it's, it's just, what I know. It's what we know. I, it's, it's what we know. If you look, every, the truth's always an inch deep, and people just don't want to scratch and yeah. check it out. But that's exactly what what happened. So why why is um, is it just to terrorizes people that Assad is still using sarin gas when he knows that's the thing it's going to trigger? Maybe maybe trigger it is now with the current administration a U.S. response. I don't I don't know that people even pay attention to it until. Okay. Until what happens? I mean, you, you see the baby, you know, you see the children yeah, no, that, uh, that, that that moved the president when yeah. his daughter showed showed him the photos. But more people die in barrel bombs. Right. Uh, more people die. You know, these yeah. these these chemical attacks are not persistent chemicals. They they they, they kill. It's it's gruesome. Right. It, but everything should be banned. Anytime you use a a military munition on a civilian population Absolutely. that can't defend itself, that should be enough. Yeah. To condemn that should be enough to, to ground an air force. That should be enough to hold Russia responsible. And I'm, I'm I'm concerned that we've set this new benchmark for other, you know, dictators to follow. That as long yeah. as you kill below Assad, you're okay. Yeah. Uh, unless you're Saudi Arabia, of course, because yeah. Saudi Arabia is going to be criticized for for one dissident in Istanbul also and for a what happens in, killing, in, but yes. in Yemen. Yeah. yeah, yeah, horrific killings. But but it's 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 Iran that's that's pointing it out. It's Assad that's pointing it out. It's Erdogan yeah. that's pointing these things out. When um, you know it's it's an interesting place in the Middle East. You can't ask it to be perfect. It never no, will be. No. You can't ask that every country fix its civil rights before they help us with a terrorism problem. We don't demand that of China. We don't demand that of, of Russia when we work with North Korea. Yep. We certainly can't demand that of, of Saudi Arabia, Erdogan, and other groups when we're working with uh, trying to defeat ISIS, Al Qaeda, and curb Iranian influence. So. The Middle East is what it is, yeah. and we have to be uh, pragmatic about. It. So, what? Well, one one quick follow up. Do, do you know the current numbers on how many of his own civilians that uh, Assad has killed, and how many have been it's displaced? Five hundred and fifty thousand dead uh-huh. um, between Assad and Jabhat al Nusra and, and the yeah. groups, but it's mainly uh, as a result of Assad's military oppression yeah. uh, of a civilian population. And the you have 3.2 million uh, displaced internally, six six million displaced externally, and now you have 3.2 million people in Idlib waiting for the next yeah. Russian, Iranian, Assad-led offensive operation, and now Turkey's stepping in there. Okay. And what's interesting about those 3.2 million people in Idlib, it's the place where's, where where's Idlib? Is it in? A, it's in Syria. It's in Syria. Uh, I mean, northern, northern Syria. yeah, northern Syria. Like, yeah. So west, right on the Turkish yeah, west of kinda, west of the okay. west of the Euphrates. Uh, it's a, a Turkish protection zone, or at least Turkey's uh-huh. trying to put put uh, make it fall into that area. At least the whole place. There's yeah. parts of it that fall under Russian control, and parts that fall under Turkish control. But Idlib was set up by design. It's not made to house 3.2 million. Not, their infrastructures in there. So. Basically, every operation that is taking place in Syria has allowed the exfil, you know, mm-hmm. the, the movement of, of Islamist militants and the civilian population to Idlib yeah. to kill it 
once everybody's there. And that's the one thing that, that Turkey so far has been able to stop. How are they stopping that through air? Uh, they, have, they have forces on the ground. They're, they, they control corridors. They, they're actually making a, a, a point to where if Russia does anything or Assad does anything, they're actually killing Turkish military. And okay. That, that right. would escalate. So that's, that's enough of a deterrent. So Turkey, while using proxies in former Jabhat al-Nusra and other groups, uh, to to move into areas such as Afrin and, and Idlib, yeah. um, it is actually the only force in Syria that's using its own military to do offensive operations. We're embedding and advising SDF and providing combat power. Yeah. It, the Turkish military is actually conducting operations. Okay. The Russian military is not. It's a Russian air force with a proxy force on the ground. Turkey has its air force and actually has a military presence and an advisory effort uh, on the ground as well. So it has the most uh, traditional military presence in the country. So what? let's go to the Russians. What's their big interest here? Why do they, I mean, you could go back to kind of the Soviet alliance with Syria. Is it? Is there, is this because the U.S. and Israel are, you know, geopolitical foes, maybe not enemies, but I, I would say enemies isn't too incorrect of a term of, of Russia, and they know that by uh, propping up Syria, it destabilizes the region and keeps us busy? All I'm that. sorry, I just answered no, no, my own question. Great. But yeah, yeah. No, please, All give us things. more insights. Um, so, you know, nobody should be surprised that Russia went into Syria because Russia always had that relationship with, with Assad and his father before that. Um, they want those warm water ports. They want a Navy presence. They want the air base. Uh, they want Assad to stay in power. <clears throat> they don't care about, they don't have a comprehensive strategy to fix Syria. They only care about the areas at their end. And um, it's interesting. I uh, went to Berlin to, to meet with some Russian counterparts in the think tank world that were tied to uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, government. And they basically told us that you know, they're not going to do anything about Iran because they can't do anything about Iran. They just don't have the numbers. They have they have about the same presence we have in Syria, but their theirs is an air force. theirs theirs is uh, air defense uh, operators and also advisors on the ground with proxy forces. Yeah. They don't have a comprehensive strategy, and they know they don't need one. They just hope to hold on to areas strategic to them. But it is also part of the vacuum, filling the vacuum of U.S., the U.S. under the Obama administration leaving the region. Yeah. And then also taking advantage of every time the president says, we're, we're going to get out of here. We're, we're gonna, ISIS is defeated. There's no reason for us to be in Syria. It's not something you want to have opponents use against you in 2020 when ISIS has not been defeated. Right. And they can throw your argument that Obama left Iraq too soon and gave rise to ISIS. You can't do the same. I mean, yeah. the president can't do the yeah. same in Iraq yeah. and Syria. I think we've seen the Middle East as a vacuum proven to us over uh, multiple times just in the last decade or two. Uh, right. Every time we leave, there, you know, there are nefarious forces that are quick to move in. And as you noted, um, folks there do appreciate brute force. And uh-huh. and they know that. I mean, we've seen this in Afghanistan as well. We've been in Afghanistan for 17 years. Yeah. Right? We've yeah. been in Iraq for, for 15 years. Each year we were in Iraq, each year in Afghanistan, we said we we're leaving the next year. Yep. Had we just said, hey, we're here for 17 years, we're here for 15 years, we would have been out in four. Yeah. Because as soon as you go into a place and you tell your enemy when you're leaving, they make you stay. Yeah. They just wait you out and they punish you, they hurt you, and you can never build trust with the Well, locals. with the ally, with the people that you yeah, need. because everything is, you're viewed as a temporary ally. The United States comes in, asks you to do these very difficult things, then goes back to their bases, leaving you 
uh, open to reprisal attacks and intimidation and, and all these things. Uh, I say often in my panels that trust is based on frequency and proximity. The more you can see me, the more you can reach out and touch me, the more you're going to trust me. Yeah. Yeah, you can't – I'm not – it doesn't work if I come and ask you to do these difficult things that put you at risk of losing your life. And then I go back to a protected base and the Taliban or Al-Qaeda come into that neighborhood after we've left and say, what did the Americans tell you? Right. And you say, I'm not going to work with them. Yep. Prove it to us. Plant an IED here. Next time they come in, let us know and we'll set up an ambush. And uh, that's why we end up being in these countries for as long as we are because as soon as we get in, we say we're leaving. Let's just say... We're going to be here for 17 years and watch what happens. Yeah. Or we're going to be here for 15 years. We, we would have been out a long time ago, and we would have been successful. There's a – the political will in the U.S., understandably, as you, you know, right. see folks come home and families have lost, you know, their, their brave sons and daughters. Right. Um, they, it, it can be challenging to say we're going to be in a place for 17 years, but I think your, your analysis there is, is dead on. You, you were on the ground, you know, working with – folks like this and trying right. to gain their trust. Did you see, you know, do you have examples of that in your own work? Yeah, I mean, everything an American advisor says on the ground to an Iraqi or, or somebody from Afghanistan or, or somebody in Syria, uh, they mean it. So when we say, hey, we're here to help you kill these, these, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or the Taliban, the American means it. Um, it's the Iraqi, the Syrian, the, and the Afghani that look at you and say, but you're only here for a year. Does the next guy mean it? Yeah. Does the next guy have my back? And, um, yeah, you, you see that. You see, um, I was a first-generation advisor with the Iraqi military. And when I told my Iraqi counterpart that I was leaving, that my replacement was coming in, he said, you, what do you mean you're leaving? The war's not over. Where are you going? I said, well, my replacement's coming in. And they have this emotional investment that they put into you. Right. And now you're leaving, and they're staying, and another American comes in. Well, and they don't get to leave. No, they I mean, don't get to life. leave. This is where and, they live. And they stay there, and if they survive, and if they, they live for 15 years, they've seen 15 different American advisors with 15 right. different uh, levels of commitment, with 15 different good idea fairy concepts. Yeah. And they sit there, and and, and, and they, they look at the American across and say, you know, I've been here before. I've developed the playbook. You're either... Lawrence of Arabia wannabe, you actually know what you want to do here and you make sense. You don't want to be here. You're just doing your time. And they, they feed off it. And yeah. they are chess players and they are strategic and they will just say, hey, if they see the American on the other side as being somebody that cannot help them succeed, they'll play the long game. They'll say, well, we need more resources. We need these things because we can't do this. Uh, it's very difficult, uh, you know, and it, and it works. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's not the way you do these things. You've got to build relationships. And you don't build them one year at a time with the Iraqi on the other side, not willing to risk emotional investment in the next iteration of American advisors yeah, as it goes up to 15 times, you know, dealing with that emotional uh, relationship or that commitment, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes, makes good sense. Um, let's talk about Israel. The, what's, obviously, the U.S. and Israel are allies here. Uh, what's been the Israeli role and response? It feels, it not doesn't feel like it's been reported pretty clearly. They've gotten more involved in Syria. Oh, you yeah. mentioned a minute ago they are uh, directly attacking it. The Russians kind of countered that by bringing in their S-300, you know, uh, advanced right. anti-aircraft weapons, which it appears uh, fifth-generation fighters can easily defeat, Yes, um, which is sends its own message to Russia. 
um, and even China, uh, when you look at the broader conflicts in the world. So what the Israelis, why have they ramped it up? Is it because they feel confident in um, U.S. leadership right now, or do they feel more threatened than ever? Well, I think everything Israel has done has actually been a counter-narrative to what we've said would happen if we conducted airstrikes against IRGC Quds Force militias in, in Syria. Russia has not responded. So our, our, our narrative, when I say our narrative, uh, Department of Defense, is that any provocation of Iran in Syria would lead to some sort of um, uh, escalation or, or fallout or attack against Americans in Iraq. And we've stayed away from that. Israel has, has went in and, and basically set Qasem Soleimani's operations back three years by hitting all of his hard sites. Yeah. Israel has a position, no Iran in Syria. Uh, with the S-300s now going to the Syrian military, uh, the Israelis have told the Russians, we will hit them. Yeah. If they fire, we will destroy them. So make sure there are no Russians inside those radar facilities or inside those targeting uh, uh, command centers yeah. because we will hit them. And uh, the um, S-300 can be defeated by... Yeah. You know, and the Russian-Chinese response would be like, well, we didn't give them the best version yeah, of the right, s right, sure. We're holding or, something back. <laughs> yeah, or the people operating them don't really know how to do it like we right, do. And right. you're lucky we weren't there to, to do these things. So my biggest concern is actually for for Russian aircraft because, as we, we've seen, the Syrians actually shot down a Russian aircraft, a transport aircraft, and now the Russians just gave them the ability to shoot down more. Yeah. Not Wait, the Syrians have shot down a Russian aircraft? Yeah, 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 Why shot. would they shoot down a Russian aircraft? Oh, they, they were trying to hit an Israeli one. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Okay, all right. So this so, was a friendly fire incident. Yeah, so the S-300s, you know, they can be easily overwhelmed with with, uh, with cruise missiles. You basically have to make a split-second decision, decision mm -hmm. whether or not to engage. And the tactic to engage an incoming U.S. cruise missile is by firing two, two missiles from an S-300 yeah. um, battery. Two missiles per cruise Oh, wow. Yeah. So you just can't do the it. Numbers it's over, the numbers don't work. The numbers right. don't work. And, and Israel's not worried about the S-300s. Uh, they are worried about killing Russians. And they've conveyed that to the Russians, that the Russians should not be in these sites. They should not be shared sites. Because if an S-300 is launched or launches one of its missiles at an Israeli aircraft, that system will be taken out. Yeah. What do you think is the most – this is a tinderbox, really. Right. What is the – biggest threat for this broadening into a, in a bigger conflict, like a mistaken shoot down of a commercial aircraft? I mean, I just, what scenarios do you see as you analyze the situation that could push this onto the front page? Right now it's a, you know, an A7 story in the newspaper. What, what, what could blow up here? Lebanese Hezbollah involvement could, could, could blow up. And it, what's really interesting is Lebanese, Nasrallah does not want a confrontation with Israel. Uh, Lebanese Hezbollah has actually conveyed to the Israelis, hey, it wasn't us that launched those missiles. It was the Iranians in Syria. So Syria has become such a free fire zone that, that Israel can punish IRGC Quds Force militias and Soleimani's forces there without the Russians doing anything and without Lebanese Hezbollah doing a, 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 a response or conducting a, 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 you know, a, a rocket launch or, or firing missiles at Israeli-controlled territory. So Qasem Soleimani, when the Russians sat on his hands, were the Russians set on their hands was perplexed by it. He didn't understand why. What are those S-300s doing in Syria if not to protect us? Yeah. Well, Russia said they're not there to protect you. They're there to protect our interests. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lebanese Hezbollah is not going to be that force that's going to punish Israel for hitting Iran in Syria. Now, 
with the situation in Gaza and Lebanon is starting to to move a certain direction, that could blow it blow it all up right. Which there. direction? Um, well, you're, you're starting to see intel where Lebanese Hezbollah has these these um, precision strike rockets at Beirut International Airport being protected by the Lebanese Armed Forces, if, if we believe what uh, Benjamin Netanyahu yeah. uh, said. Uh, those, Israel made a mistake by not doing more to stop Lebanese Hezbollah from getting where it is now in Lebanon. They're not going to make that same mistake with Hamas yeah. uh, getting these rockets. And you have this whole, this whole, you know, you've heard of the Iranian land bridge. You know, this yeah. logistical supply lines now. Well, explain, explain that, actually. The Iranian land bridge is... Well, we were always concerned that, you know, Iran wanted a superhighway, so to speak, mm-hmm. from, from Tehran to Baghdad to Damascus to, to Beirut. It has it. Yeah. And we're in denial that it has it. Uh, we actually have senior defense officials saying it doesn't exist. It exists because Iraqi militias are in Syria. Yeah. It exists because when Israel attacks Qasem Soleimani's forces in Syria, he orders them to fall back to Iraq just across the border where Israel will not strike and the U.S. will not strike. Well, that may change in the future uh, based on the offensive capabilities of these militias and the desired end state of actually being able to mobilize these militias to not only uh, threaten or, or to prop up Assad, but to actually threaten Israel, to threaten Jordan. To 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 uh, disrupt this the fragile stability that exists yeah. in in Jordan, so there's there's a lot of things that can happen, but it's tied to Lebanese Hezbollah's response. So far, they haven't done anything. Even if we've killed Lebanese Hezbollah, when I say we, uh, I shouldn't say we. When the Israelis yes. have killed Lebanese yes. Hezbollah in in Syria, Lebanese Hezbollah in Lebanon has not responded. It's though Syria is a free fire zone. Okay. When that ceases to be, then it might could be a problem. Get worse. Yeah. So, kind of getting to wrap this up. Right now, how st- when you look at the kind of alliances here that are fighting this proxy war, we're talking about a a you know Russian, Syrian, Iranian kind of alliance and a U.S. Israeli uh, alliance. Wh- who's stronger right now? Who has the connections best? Is are U.S. Israeli relations at a good point at this point or um, do you worry about that? <laughs> well, I'll just I'll use Afrin as an example. So Afrin was a territory that Turkish forces were using Jabhat al-Nusra, an al-Qaeda affiliate, to move into Afrin to punish the YPG, an American ally, west of the Euphrates. YPGs, just to remind folks, I yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a Kurdish... Yeah, Kurd- Kurdish, right? Kurdish militia that, that Turkey says is tied to uh, the... the terrorist group, PKK. Yeah. Uh, and Turkey is very concerned about that. So Turkey uses an al-Qaeda affiliate to move into Afrin to go after a U.S. temporary ally. Who comes to the, our U.S. temporary ally's defense? Iranian proxy militias, Lebanese okay. Hezbollah, uh, Russia. And in that, our Secretary of State at the time, Tillerson, tells Erdogan, when you hit YPG forces, our temporary ally yeah. in Syria, make sure you only hit them and not the civilians in Afrin. And think about how that translates to a to an advisor with the YPG east of the Euphrates. When he's working with a very capable anti-ISIS force, and they're saying, why, why are the Americans allowing our brothers and sisters to be killed west of the Euphrates? Yeah. And that special forces advisor 
basically says, well, because we have a different policy west of the Euphrates and east of the Euphrates, which makes no sense and puts that American in, in the very difficult situation of translating a failed strategic message from Washington, D.C. But that's how messed up Syria is. And that, yeah. that offer an example, you have a U.S. ally being aided by Iran, Lebanese Hezbollah, and Russia to defend against a U.S. ally, a NATO ally, Turkey, who's using an al-Qaeda affiliate to move into Afrin and bypass ISIS positions. And you, we're sitting on the other side of the river wondering what the yeah. hell is going on. Right. And it's because we don't have a strategy in Syria. Uh, we may have one now, but it needs to be – right now it's supposedly defeat ISIS and keep, kick Iran out of Syria. It, yet there's no military um, plan for any of that. Every, every goalpost that Ambassador Jeffries has set up is a, is a military one to demilitarize, to, to keep Assad from doing this, to defeat ISIS, to keep Iran out. And all of the tools that we have on, on our right column, there are no military ones. There are no kinetic ones. It's all diplomacy. Well, it doesn't work with a two-man team. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work with a three-man team. And Brett McGurk's part of that process. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a, a very difficult situation. And we keep asking tran- transitional... Um, leaders to solve it. Yeah. And we're getting ready to have a new Secretary of Defense if we, if we look at the new uh, reports or the, at least yeah. the, the things that are coming out of D.C. Um, you know, we have an election coming up. It basically, all of this has about a two-year lifespan with the new Secretary of Defense. And what, what will our strategy be? Uh, I don't know. Assad can wait us out. Iran can wait us out. Yeah. Russia can wait us out. And ISIS is already back in the al-Qaeda model. There are solutions in everything I say. I, yeah. I just don't. No, no, no. I just well, haven't I mean, brought them up look, yet. <laughs> this is this is the this is the we're we're grateful that we live in a democracy in the U.S. and I know the Israelis are as well. Right. Um, and we don't live under a despotic regime like Assad or, right. or, or Iran. But you know, the flip side of that is they get to um, wait us out, and they don't. Yeah. Their their policy doesn't change it. Change, yeah. and and the American people get to speak, and I'm grateful for that. So yeah. this is a problem it's good to have, but ultimately it can be a it can be a challenge when you're trying to do foreign policy, as, yeah. you've, as you've demonstrated here. So should, is there any reason we should have hope for, you know, what, what positive hope here going forward? What are some – leave <coughs> us on a good note if you can. <laughs> well, the positive thing is we're, we walked out of the JCPOA, and it's, it's really hurt Iran. That's the Iran, Iran deal. We're yep. getting ready to put more sanctions on Iran in early November, and that's a good thing. We're uh, using leverage with the Iraqi government to keep to, to curb Iranian influence. That's a good thing also. Uh, we, we seem to have the willingness to actually sanction individuals and entities in Iraq to keep, keep Iran from using Iraq as a shell company. That's a good thing. Uh, Israel has our military support as far as technology and equipment to be able to do what they need to do. Israel can fight this by themselves. They've told us that. They just want our technology to help do that. Um, Russia can't afford to stay there, yeah. but they can afford to stay there longer than we can afford to wait. Right. Um, and it's it's a uh, situation where I'm fearful that 10-year-old Americans will be in Iraq and Syria as 20-year-olds yeah. fighting the next iteration of ISIS, al-Qaeda, with this new dynamic where the RGC Quds Force militias are, are, are starting to be more than just a local force and starting to want to do more in the Middle East and North Africa. 
Well, it's it's a complicated area. We're glad that you're here at Hudson Institute keeping an eye on it, especially, um, you know, the the issues like the you were talking about with the Iraqi uh, uh, right. cabinet and, and who fills those roles. Um, those are the kind of things that, that need to be watched. And, right. And, um, we'll keep an eye on this going forward. We appreciate your work. I well, so appreciate you. Thanks, thanks for joining us today, Mike. Okay. Thanks. Um, and I want to thank all our listeners for downloading our podcast today. Uh, please subscribe and tell your friends about us. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. For all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you joining us today, and we appreciate Mike joining us. I'm Brian Blake. Thank you for listening. <laughs>